father was doing the reading this morning. He was, he was trying to amen you the whole time. He is a precious little guy. Well, um, the study that we are in is the Gospel of John. And today, as Greg has just read, we're in the seventh chapter, those first 23 verses there. And I have titled the, the sermon, The Root Cause of Unbelief. And in our story, I see two different types of unbelief. There is the unbelief of Jesus' brothers, which we're going to talk a good bit about that. And then there's the unbelief of the Jews up in Judea. And we're going to talk about that as well. I don't know about you, but um, growing up in my home, my father, um, many of you have heard me say this, served as uh, a Marine, and uh, his father was career military in the Air Force. And so every time there was a documentary that was on the war, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, any of them, I might be up in my room playing, doing whatever, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, and I would hear from the living room my father say, hey, Clint, Clint, come down here. I got to show you something. There's actual footage, actual footage. And I'd come down there, and sure enough, you know, there'd be actual footage of the war to him. That was the most amazing thing ever. To me, it was kind of at, at 10 years old, it was like, you made me stop playing and come in here to watch this. And now, as, a, as my kids got older, it's like, yo, Bryce, come down here for a minute. This is actual footage. Well, in some sense, there are actual footage of the relationship that went on in Jesus' home in our text today. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in uh, probably my favorite series, The Band of Brothers, is, uh, you know, when, when somebody throws a grenade and some brave soldier to save everybody's life goes over there, picks the grenade up, and throws it back out of the building, I've always thought, man, I hope that would be me. I would go over there and throw the grenade back out. In our story today, John, the writer, the author of our gospel, he throws a grenade into the story. And unfortunately, nobody's picking this grenade up and throwing it back out. It's as if John wants this grenade to actually go off in our face. And it does. In John 7, verse 5, in our text, this is how it reads. Not even his brothers believed in him. That is a grenade. That grenade unnerves me when I read, not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. We're talking about people that ate at the same dinner table. Y'all know in those situations, probably slept in the same bed. They did everything together. And for 30 plus years, they're with him and they don't even 
believe. That's hard for me to hear. It reminds me of John 6. These are hard sayings. Who can hear them? Why would not his own brothers believe? And so we're going to talk about why didn't they believe and what made them change. Because if you look in Acts 1.14, after Jesus has been crucified, he's now ascended up into heaven. Guess who is there in the upper room when Pentecost happens, when the Holy Spirit is given? All of Jesus' brothers, it says in Acts 1.14, are there. So now they've moved from unbelief to belief, somewhere between what is happening in our text and later. And here's another note. John, when he wrote the book, the Gospel of John that we're reading, he knew James was writing his book that is in the Scriptures, the book of James. James is one of the brothers of Jesus. And he is believed to be the author of that book. So John knew all of that, and yet he throws the grenade in the room and lets it go, pow, right in our face. And we have to deal with this, what made them not believe. So look with me in our text at John 7, 1 through 7. Let's read it together. It says, after this... Jesus went up about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So already the Jews are after him. Now the feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. That's the word, that's the text. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about that its works are evil. Now, the first question you're probably asking, because maybe for some of us, it's been a long time since we sat in a Sunday school class. And so if I were to just right now stop and go, all right, who were Jesus' brothers? I want you to call them out to me right now. You would be like, oh, please, no. Matthew 13, 55. Look at Matthew 13, 55. This is what it says in Matthew 13, verse 55. They say, is this, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Now, we're not talking about Judas the traitor. But right there, they named the four brothers. James Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So Jesus' brothers were saying to him over here in the first few verses, 
if you're going to make a scene, Jesus, be seen. You know, go up there to Judea and show them what you can do. We've seen what you can do. We know that you can do it. But here's the crazy thing. They know he can do these miracles, but they still don't believe in him. They still don't believe what? The most essential thing. Not that he, he, they know he can do miracles, but they don't believe that he's God. And could you imagine if you were Jesus's brother, mostly we think, man, that would really be cool to be Jesus's brother. But think about it for a moment. Just his pure, his purity, his morality, those things, growing up in a home with a perfect sibling, you want to talk about sibling rivalry, that would be it, wouldn't it? I mean, you've got the, the literal perfect brother, and you're trying to measure up. You would feel always, always inferior. And then you think about even when, you know, your parents are sitting around after dinner, and they're recalling the story of when Jesus was born. They're like, do you remember how the star hung over there, and it guided the wise men from afar? And you're sitting over there with, you know, you're James, and it's like, I got nothing. You know, y'all always talk about his birth. He's always the wonder boy. And they're thinking, who are we? You know, we're nobody compared to him. And then to make matters worse, when Jesus finally comes of age and starts his public ministry, he goes out and he starts telling people, basically, I'm God. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. Could you imagine because we know how hostile they were up in Judea. They wanted to kill him. The brothers are like, hey, back off the, the God stuff and just go up there and do some of your miracles. You know, that might make it a little bit easier for us being your family and your brothers. So look with me at Matthew thirteen fifty seven. This will give you another idea of how Jesus felt. Matthew 13, verse 57. It says in there, and they, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and I want you to follow this, and in his own household. A prophet's not without honor but in his own home, hometown, and in his own household. Jesus, there was some dysfunction going on. Not everybody believed, even in his own house, who he was. That's hard. So the brothers had already communicated their unbelief. And then you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. But Mark 3, 21, just to help you understand what Jesus is experiencing in his, in his own home. He's basically done these things, and it says, when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. It's like, wow, what, how hard is that? Your own family is saying that you're out of your mind. I remember after becoming a Christian, having my father not be a Christian, and him telling my older brother, Yes, I think your brother is in a cult, and him being serious about it. I think Clint is in a cult. 
my father, very, you know, strong non-believer, not strong believer. And so when I got it, when I started changing, he, be, he began to believe perhaps I had gotten into a cult. So we see the family is missing it. Now, let me say this for, for you and for me. This, I hope, is very encouraging. Do you have family members who at this point you would say, unbelief, they don't believe in Jesus? I do. I have several family members that don't believe in Jesus. It brings this grenade that John is throwing into this gospel in in chapter 7 that he wants it to go off in your face so that I think you can see even Jesus, even the Lord and Prince of glory, even his own brothers didn't believe at this time. Jesus is not surprised by the unbelief in some of our families. He experienced some of the very same things. And so... It gives me courage that just like James later writes the book of James in the Bible and his other brothers are up there in the room in Pentecost in Acts 1.14, God can still work. God can still work. It's a, it's, a, it's a message of hope. So then there's this question, you know, if we're looking at this text, what is the feast of the booth? B-O-O-T-H. What is that feast about? It was also called the Feast of the Tabernacle. And in Hebrew, the Feast of Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T. In in Zechariah 14, 16, there is the inauguration of this feast. feast. Should have a a slide for it. In in, uh, Zechariah 14, 16, it says this. Then everyone who survives all of the nations that have come against Israel or Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of the booths. And so the prophet has told them, now we're going to remember how God has saved us. And so we're going to have this feast once a year And we're going to go up, and it's going to be a ceremonial remembrance of God's deliverance. So this is a reminder that God redeems, that the people of the Lord are supposed to come together and surrender certain things. They give up their self-reliance. They give up their selfishness, and they actually go, leave their homes, and sit in these booths. That's really different than what Jen and Charlie get to do today at the Falcons game. They get to sit in a booth that we, we don't get to sit in. But their booths were primitive. It was like going without. And so they were giving up their, their luxuries and their comforts so that they could say, the Lord is worthy of me surrendering these things. Now... It is interesting, and there's great irony, great great irony here to me about the the going up to this feast of the booths. 
The brothers are wanting them to go, right? And here we see there is a great blindness on the part of the brothers. They're seeing, but they don't see. They're hearing, but they don't hear. And why do I say that? The reason that I say that is that what they're really celebrating, what this feast of the tabernacle is all about, all of the promises from Genesis all the way through Revelation are fulfilled in Christ. They're going to this party or this remembrance because of the Redeemer that is going to save them from their sins. That's why they even had the feast. But the brothers, they can't see that. And it would be kind of like this. What if in college I had a roommate? His name was Mike. What if I invited Mike to a party that I found out was going on? And the reason, though, that I invited Mike to the party, and this, this part of the story is true, a little bit gross. Um, Mike, usually when he went to parties, this is in college, he could take maybe a woman's or a necklace and he would feed it through his nose canal and he would pull it out of his mouth and he would go like this with it. And the women would puke and the guys would be, man, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I didn't know you could do that anatomically. So let's say, yes, let's say I invite Mike to the party and I tell him I want you to do your trick. Well, about midway through the party, Mike tells me, Clint, you didn't know this, and you used me to get attention for yourself, but this is my party. It's my birthday. This was my birthday party. You invited me just so you could get me to do this silly thing. You see, it's not that different for Jesus in this situation. This really is a celebra celebration of the Redeemer. It's a celebration of the Messiah that was to come. And his brothers are saying, why don't you go up there and do your party tricks? Go up there and do a few miracles. Show them who you are. If you want to be seen, be seen. Could you imagine internally how that would have made him feel? You're using me. You're using me so that you can get some glory when in reality, you don't realize it, but the whole thing is about me. So, do you ever feel like this? Why don't more people see Christianity for what it really is? It really is, it's not going to church. Christianity's not going to church. Going to church is helpful for our relationship with God, and we should do that, but that's not Christianity. Christianity at its core is a loving, intimate relationship between you and your Creator. And in the beginning, God walked in Eden 
with his people. And there was perfect fellowship. And they walked together. And I could only imagine, I could only imagine what that would be like to be that intimate and that close to the all-knowing, all-creating, powerful God of the universe. And then sin enters, and it's broken, and Eden is almost completely forgotten, the place that God dwelled with his people. But God, in his sovereign providence, creates a new way. And actually, I believe heaven is the restoring of Eden, that he is going to come down to this earth and create a new heavens and new earth. And it says in Revelations 21, he's going to walk with his people. He's going to dwell again with his people. He's going to restore Eden. So all of that is at play. All the beauty, all the complexities of this world are but echoes of his glory and his majesty. If you have a genuine relationship with God, it is about seeing and savoring him as the true treasure that he is. That's what this whole thing is about. So then, why did four brothers who shared a bed, a meal, friendship, all of it, with the Lord Jesus himself, why did they miss it? How did they miss it? And if they could miss it, maybe you could miss it. Maybe I could miss it. Look with me, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. Here it is. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. There is a God in this world that the scriptures are talking about that is not God in the form of Jesus that we're talking about. This is God's enemy, Satan. He is the God of this world, and he is blinding minds. You want to know why more of your family members or more of your coworkers or more of your neighbors don't see Jesus for who he is? It is because of this. The God of this world is blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the glory of of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is an active enemy to the gospel in our world, and he is blinding the minds of unbelievers. They don't come, they don't see, they don't hear, because he's actively blinding them from the truth. God must remove the blinders. God must open their eyes. God must 
raised them up from being spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1. God must take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. God must cause them to be born again, Romans 3. This is a Holy Spirit work, Romans 8, 9. No man can just decide to do all of that for himself. God's grace is our only hope. It's their only hope, and it's the world's only hope. The scriptures teach we are stubborn, we are prideful, we are blind, we are deaf. Our souls can only come, it says in John 6, if the Father grants it. And then in John 6, nobody comes to the Father unless he who sent me draws him. It's a supernatural work of God that anybody responds in faith. So Jesus' brothers, they miss it. They miss him. Even though they knew him arguably better than anybody that ever walked the face of the earth. And that tells me, oh, how easy it is for us to miss. They were celebrating the feast of booths. And he walks in among them and they want to kill him. Talk about being blind. Why? So we've said they were blind because there's an enemy that is blinding their minds. And then the second thing, remember the title of this whole thing is the root cause of unbelief. One, there's an enemy to you seeing the truth, to me seeing the truth. Two, I want you to look at what I think might be, for me, the most significant chapter, I mean, verse in all of the Gospel of John that we've studied. Because the whole Gospel is trying to say, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. But why do we not see it? One, it's what we talked about in Corinthians. But two, look with me at John 5, verse 43 and 44. This, I think, is why it all hinges right here. This is why we miss it. This is why we miss it even after we come to Christ. We don't experience the fullness of what it means to know God. And this is why we miss it initially. John 5, 43 and 44. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here's what I'm saying. Is in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, more than you want to admit or me, and more than we realize, one of the things that we lost was our identity. We lost our sense of self-worth. And ever since Genesis 3, 
we are pridefully and arrogantly and stubbornly trying to build ourselves up. I have an equation in my mind. The equation that I pray God saves me from is this. My performance, so if you think about math, my performance is like the number five. My performance plus others' approval equals my self-worth. My performance plus others' approval equals my self-worth. And here's the thing. That's the human condition. That's not just Clint. The reality is we all live there from the fall. Genesis 3, when, when we fell, our worth and value fell. Why is it that Adam and Eve are hiding behind fig leaves? There's shame. Why is there shame? They've lost their identity. And here's the thing. We work our whole lives to build our identities back up. And we're always trying to scratch out an identity for ourselves. We use every gift God gives us. If we're pretty, we use that. If we're intelligent, we use that. If we're athletic, we use that. Whatever it is, whatever gift you have, you use that to build yourself up. But what you can't do and what it'll never work because there's always somebody prettier. There's always somebody more intelligent. There's always somebody that's more gifted. You know what you got to realize? My identity can only be given to me by God. And when I receive the identity that he gives me as a child of God, it's the only identity you can't steal from me. And I can't steal it from you. You're safe. You're free. And the beauty of being free in a world that's enchained to a broken self-identity, when people see your freedom in Christ and they see how you are learning that the gospel over and over in all different ways is setting you free, that makes people go, what is different about them? How are they so joyful? How are they so set free from that equation of my performance plus others' approval equals my self-worth? What, what did Jesus say right there? He says in John 5, 43 and 44, look at it again. He says, how can you believe? How can, how can you believe in me when you receive glory from another? You can't because you're looking for your glory from somebody. Only God, only God, only God can set you free. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's how the gospel doesn't just work for me when I become a Christian, but the gospel works for me every day of my life as it sets me free from your opinions and others' opinions of the world, and I can be me. I can be me. I just got to be me. That's all I got to be. I don't have to be your expectations for me. I can just be me, me in Christ. Me and Christ, 
I long for you to experience that peace. I long for you to experience that freedom. Ladies, maybe if you get that, and and this is a joke, so please take it that way. If you get that, maybe the next time you're getting ready, you don't have to change blouses seven times. You know, you could just change once and then say, I'm going like this. I'm being me. Guys, you know, you don't have to name drop. You don't have to arm wrestle figuratively with people to prove to them how great you are. You don't have to tell them all your accolades. You can just be you. Free in the gospel. Free in the gospel. So, Jesus tells them, look at at John 7, still back to our text, 10 through 13. He says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, now I'm reading in the ESV. In the NIV, I actually like the translation better. It says, then he also went up. Because in the, in the ESV, he says, I'm not going. In the NIV, he says, I'm not going yet. And the I'm not going yet is a better translation. So the Jews were looking for him. I'm back in John 7, 10 through 13. Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, nope, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. And so basically, Jesus goes up to the feast. And what we're seeing in John 14, I mean, John 7, 14 through 18, it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine. You kind of get that repetitive thing. My teaching's not mine, it's his. If anyone is if anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. And if you seek your own glory, You can't be seeking the glory of God. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Now in this, what I'm I'm seeing is God is saying, if you really want to know the Lord, there's got to be a willingness to surrender and to yield yourself. Some of us have been Christians for three years. Some of us have been Christians for five years. Some of us have been Christians for 40 or 50 years. And unfortunately, if we haven't been yielding to God and surrendering to God, our text is basically saying, you're not going to know more of him. You're going to know God's will if you're yielding. If you're yielding to him. So you could actually just be repeating for 50, 60, 70 years and not growing up in the grace of God if we are not yielding and surrendering to him. And, you know, you might say, well, Clint, I'm not an adulteress. I'm not a murderer. I seriously doubt. There may be one of you sitting here that killed somebody last night and you've been up all night burying the body in a shallow grave somewhere, and you washed up, and you came in here, and you're sitting here going, he must know I've done it, or why else would he be talking about this? 
No, I don't believe that. What I believe, though, is there are refined sins. Not these murderous, adulterous sins that are keeping us at distance from God. But there are some refined sins. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, he said, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The real issue is the heart. And then what's in there eventually makes its way out. And the way it makes its way out in the refined sins, and the reason I say that is you're too spiritual. You're too churched to do the bad stuff so to speak. But we get real comfortable with some of these other things. Like, for example, I think it is a little bit true of us as a church that we might have a problem with somebody else in the church. Not all of us are this way, but a lot of us are. And we just kind of That's not really a problem. We'll just sweep that under the rug and let's go on. That's how my non-Christian family dealt with problems. And you know what? That's not dealing with a problem. That is not, you've got to get face to face and you've got to work through and resolve conflict. And when that happens, you know what happens in our church? There's a holiness that comes out of that. And people look at your community and they say, that's different. Because it wasn't just my family that did that. It was your family too. And it's probably you. The difference between believers and unbelievers is we look at headlong, straight in the face, admit our sin, and ask forgiveness. And then we make restitution if necessary. And we're able to move forward in this greater grace and love that a non-Christian world sees and says, I want to be a part of that community. Y'all want our church to grow? Live like that. Deal with your sins like that. You want our church to stay small? Sweep it under the rug. Gossip. Call somebody up and tell them how you don't like me. That's how that happens. That's how churches die. We have got to be in Christ together, dealing with conflict, loving one another, speaking into one another's lives, and forgiving. And forgiving. And forgiving. I might say it seven times, 70 times. That'd be the rest of my morning. But that's what Jesus said. And forgiving. And forgiving. That's what God's calling us to. That's what he's calling us to. There's two types of unbelief here. The brothers are saying, go up there and do your miracles, man. If you want to be seen, make a scene. Theirs is all about themselves because could you imagine if you're up in Judea and Jesus is over there and I, I'm like, I'm, I'm James or Simon and I go, hey, Jesus, come over here. And I go, hey, watch this. See that water right there? <laughs> My brother can turn that to wine. And I go, Jesus, just come on, do the thing. Do your thing. 
I've seen you do it. Just do your thing. And Jesus says, no, no. That's not why I'm here. It was all about them, the brothers. It was all about them. They were going to get some glory for what Jesus could do. But then in Judea, the Jews were like, don't do your miracles here. We saw what you did in John 5 when you healed that guy on the Sabbath. You should have never healed him on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, Moses circumcised on the Sabbath. Y'all didn't say anything to him. I healed a whole man's body, and y'all think I'm the devil himself. It's all about you, man. You're worried I'm going to steal your power. Here's the glory. And I want to give you a minute to turn there. James is the book, and it's after Hebrews, I mean, uh, before Hebrews, where is it? After Hebrews, excuse me. Right after Hebrews, James 2, verse 1. And I'm going to close with this. Remember, I said, you may have unbelieving family members. James was one of those, the brother of Jesus. This is the grace of our God toward unbelief and toward our family's unbelief. For me, it is moving in James 2.1 to hear James refer to his brother as our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Can you imagine what this phrase meant for James? The Lord of glory had once slept beside him, ate dinner at the table beside him, played with his friends with him, spoke to him like a brother, endured his unbelief, paid the debt of sin, and then brought him to faith. Can you see the glory of God today in the life of James? Jesus was patient. Jesus broke through. Jesus will break through for us. Perhaps he's already broken through for you. We should pray that the God of the universe, this Jesus, will break through in the lives of our family members. Let's pray.